Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is, well, it's December the 19th. 2016, and this is episode 1918 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Monday. That's a listener feedback show, and here's the feedback I'm going to be commenting on today. One, I have a listener call that damn near could have came from an expert council member. It's on Sue's Vid Cooking that we've been talking about a little bit lately, and the ins and outs on it, and it's pretty damn good. So I'm going to play that for you and let you know the uh, the leap into the world of Sous Vide Cooking that I have taken. Even though I actually haven't done anything yet with it, I have purchased one, and I will be playing with it, and I will let you know my recommendations after I do that, because I never recommend something until I know what the F I'm talking about. That is true. Anyway, next up, I have a question from a listener regarding my recent experience with the 357 Magnum Carbine. The Ruger 77357. He's actually considering getting a pistol caliber carbine, and he's leaning toward 44 Magnum. He wants me to kind of bounce the two off of each other and, and, and give him some advice on deciding where to go with it. And I'd be happy to do that. One of my favorite subjects is talking about guns. Um, I got a question on the Electoral College. Does it make sense today? The people that are objecting to it, do they have a valid point? Uh, maybe not so much in this election, but going forward. Uh, I have a, a person asking if school choice is actually gutting the system. And my response to that is, if it is, is that so bad? Well, I'll tell you this sob story they're writing, and I'll tell you why I can't really listen to it. And I'll tell you what I think uh, about the concept of school choice and public education as a whole. Uh, I also have thoughts on charging from a vehicle frequently or using the DC power from your vehicle frequently. Are there any concerns? Um, I have a question on leasing versus buying a, buying a vehicle. Uh, and I have a, a, an alternative view on automation and uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, a person that says, hey, all of this artificial intelligence and AI and this stuff, it's going to cause a second industrial revolution and everything's going to be wonderful. Maybe, sort of, kind of, not, no. Uh, we'll talk to you about it when we get there. We have a possible low-cost source of jerry cans. I say possible because I haven't bought one yet and my jury's still out, but I will give you the resource that you can decide for yourself. And we have, coming from the GOP, who has promised to repeal and replace Obamacare, the term they're throwing around now is universal access. And, of course, that's very different from universal health care. I'll tell you why it probably isn't. That'll round out the day. And then I've got a Christmas song for you that's kind of something different and a little bit fun. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a .com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Next up, let's take a look at the, um, the, the year that was the episode, the episode 1918. So we will look at the year 1918. Alex Shrugged has two for us today. First, we have a world transformed by war and peace. 
We have the Spanish influenza begins in Kansas. And then we have notable births, a lot of them, and names many of you will know. Billy Graham, Christian evangelist, Oral Roberts, first televangelist and founder of Oral Roberts University. Sam Walton, founder of Walmart and Sam's Club, is born this year, 1918. Paul Harvey, who would tell you about the rest of the story. Mike Wallace, correspondent for 60 Minutes and father of Fox News host Chris Wallace, is born this year. Nelson Mandela, anti-apartheid revolutionary and president of South Africa. Betty Ford and co-founder of Betty Ford Center, a drug and alcohol rehab center. And Gamal Abdel Nassar, president of Egypt, who will nationalize the Suez Canal and begin the modernization of Egypt. In other news, the first cruise missile is developed. The automatic airplane delivers a bomb, but development stalls when peace breaks out. While Bill Donovan receives the Medal of Honor, he will found the OSS, which will become the CIA. And the Sedition Act forbids criticism of the U.S. government. This includes observing that Germany is not a credible threat to the USA. The Supreme Court upholds the law. And you thought tyranny was something new in America. I'm going to read for you The World Transformed by Peace and War. The end of the Great War is characterized by technological innovation, rebellion, and the passing of a lackluster, passing of a lackluster aristocracy. The German Red Baron makes his name with 80 victories, many of them in his Fokker triplane, until he is shot down by Canadian Roy Brown with his swap with camel. And fans of Charlie Brown will know all about that, right? The Ukrainian People's Republic is independent for less than a year. 800 sailors, sailors of the Austrian-Hungary Navy mutiny. Lithuania goes through formal procedures for independence. Russia is tied up in its October Revolution. Estonia declares its independence and then loses it as German forces advance. Then Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, plus parts of eastern Turkey, become independent. British forces capture Nazareth, Haifa, and Jericho. The Kaiser is pushed aside. The German military is now in charge. And one last push before Americans can overwhelm them, the Germans launch their spring offensive. But they are outrun their own supply lines. By, the time, by that time, over a million fresh American troops throw their weight against the line and push hard. By November, defeat is certain. The German public is in full rebellion. The German Navy leadership is on its death ride. But German sailors refuse to cooperate. Finally, the Kaiser abdicates and flees to the Netherlands. Germany is a republic. And at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, a truce is declared. It's Armistice Day. Peace talks will begin next year, but generally speaking, this war is over for now. My take by Alex Shrug. The German military retreated in good order, which allowed them to contend that they had not been defeated. The German public believed that they had been stabbed in the back by the government leadership, the Jews, and the Bolsheviks. This anti-Semitic novel, The Stint Against the Blood, became a bestseller in Germany that year. President Woodrow Wilson imposed his idealistic progressive will on the Paris peace talks. The Versailles Treaty imposed ruinous in, in requirements on Germany and set up the conditions for World War II. Armistice Day became a U.S. national holiday. It was renamed, renamed Veterans Day in 1954. Well, my take on this, first of all, if you've heard my Veterans Day special, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, it sounds, it sounds almost glorious, doesn't it? That's, that was intentional. Um, The guns continued to fire, and men continued to be sent up out of the trenches on occasion uh, after the war's outcome was known, because they waited till that moment and actually listened to the guns go silent. And then they went silent. The stupidity of war has never been summed up more perfectly 
than such a thing. The absolute stupidity of war and the absolute just not giving a shit about the life of the men you're sending to fight by those in power. Anybody with a half a brain would have said, this is stupid. This is stupid. You want to, you want to sign this paper at that point? Fine. Let's declare a flat out, all out truce and then we'll sign the agreement two days from now. But no, the war actually continued. The war actually continued so that some asshole someday could say those words and make it sound beautiful for the end of war all, and war to end all wars. Which to be fair, these people really thought they had just fought. Another take I have in this, a lot of people that take a critical look at history of this time say, you know, the U.S.'s role in winning this really was like coming in at the end of a bar fight and when the guy's almost out, you just reach over top of the shoulder guy, he's fighting and punch him in the head and knock him out, and you really didn't do anything. The reality is America had a huge influence on this. How well supplied they were was a big part of it. But another part of it was that on both sides, the men in the trenches had begun to feel... We can't win. This will never end. I just hope it ends for me soon, either by death or injury, or maybe I get rotated out. But they had just gone into such a stalemate and such a way of death and disease and injury for so long, they were pretty much just holding their ground. And America, when we came into the war, we did some dumb shit, like running down the middle of no man's land, like we're going to end. And, and, and that over-exuberance cost a lot of lives on our side. But... Once we kind of figured out the way things were going, our troops had something that the troops that had been there for years didn't. They had a sense of optimism. And had they come in at the you know earlier into the war, it might not have mattered as much. But by the time the morale of the troops on the other side of the line, the Germans, was about as low as it could be, and, and while the French and, and British and other troops had pretty low morale too, The addition of a million people with a high optimistic, you know, a high morale and optimistic viewpoint could only help. And that's part of why America was so influential in World War One. It wasn't just that we were America. It's that the timing and what had already happened to the men that were part of that meat grinder, because it was getting difficult for the French, for the Germans, for everybody to find anybody else to come in and add to the lines because They had taken all of their men and, and put them into this meat grinder. And, you know, people were writing home, and, and, and little Johnny wasn't so uh, quick to go off and join his, his brother Tim, who was dead, who he had heard in letters from that this, there was no point to this. And, and you have to think about that in that context to understand what's going to occur in the world as we lead up to World War II and the U.S. taking a position as the dominant world power at the end of World War II. If you don't understand th what I just said, it's hard to understand how all of these things happen for good and ill over the next few decades. All right, so with that, let's get into uh, our first question for me today. Actually, it's not a question. It's some comments by a listener who you know, has been listening to us kind of go around and around a little bit with this, this concept of sous vide cooking. And I'm just going to play his, his call, which is excellent. I'll put the links he mentions in the show notes for you as well. And I'll be back with uh, some thoughts, and we'll go on to the next question. Hello, Jack. This is Jeff Schwab. I'm one of your listeners. Uh, I was listening to one of your recent shows where you were talking about sous vide cooking, and I wanted to provide some feedback, uh, as you requested, about experience with sous vide cooking and the equipment that we use for it. I've been doing... Uh, 
sous vide cooking now for about three years in my home. I cook sous vide style anywhere from uh, one to three times a week. And so over the course of the last three years, I've developed uh, quite a bit of expertise and knowledge about it. First thing I want to talk about is cooking temperature. You'd mentioned in your show that when we do sous vide cooking, we cook at a specific temperature for a specific period of time. Uh, with regard to the specific period of time, the thing to keep in mind is the period of time that we look at is the minimum period of time necessary to safely cook the food so that it uh, reduces the possibility or eliminates the possibility of any nasty bacteria or other things in there that don't get uh, taken care of through the cooking process. However, once you reach that minimum time, you can continue to hold that food in there for uh, a long time beyond that. Uh, how long? Uh, I've done certain sous vide recipes where I've cooked things for up to five days at a specific temperature. One great resource on the internet that you can look up is uh, Douglas Baldwin's uh, webpage where he's got a ton of information about sous vide, about the, the science behind sous vide, and also uh, a lot of information to the reader about uh, recipes and specific temperatures for specific uh, types of meat and or uh, vegetables that you might be cooking sous vide style. When we do talk about sous vide cooking, there are three basic uh, devices that you can use for sous vide cooking. The most common one that we see in kitchens today now uh, is the temperature controller type device. And basically the way this works is you plug it in line to the uh appliance that you're going to be cooking the sous vide style in. Most typically, people have an old school crock pot or a rice cooker that they've got in their house. And these uh, usually have an on-off or in the case of a crock pot, it's got a uh, high, low, and warm setting. And so when I cook sous vide style, uh, I've used the temperature controller in line with my crock pot. So I plug my, I put my crock pot on, on the high setting. I plug it into the temperature controller. I fill the crock pot full of water, uh, or at least enough water to submerge, uh, whatever it is that I'm cooking sous vide style. And then I throw a temperature probe, uh, or a thermal coupler that, that goes in, that is submerged in the water in the crock pot. I put my meat into the crock pot, put the lid on it, and then I set the temperature for the temperature controller and I let it go. And as long as I cook it, once it reaches temperature, as long as uh, I cook it for the minimum period of time necessary at that temperature, the food is, is safe to eat. And uh, the nice thing is you can take some very inexpensive cuts of meat like round steak, which, you know, may not be a, a, a good cut of steak, but if you cook it sous vide style for five to eight hours, it comes out and it can be as tender as a filet mignon. And then once we get done with it, you pull it out of the package, you pat it dry, you sear it on both sides in a skillet, season it, and it's ready to go. Um, I've used uh, a couple of different uh, styles. One of the styles of uh, temperature controllers I've used is the Dork Foods controller. It's uh, been pretty good. I've gone through a couple of them. Uh, the first time, uh, Dork Foods was good enough to replace it at no cost to me. The second time, I decided that I would branch out and perhaps try something different. And so I've uh, found a couple of uh, inexpensive temperature control devices that are uh, made out of China. If you go to Amazon, just let the reviews guide you as far as which one that uh, you want to get. The Dork Foods one that I purchased originally uh, was about $99. However, I've been very happy with a Chinese knockoff one that's uh, that's about $40, $45. And, and basically the way these work is is they, they power cycle on and off the appliance. And so once it reaches, the water reaches a certain temperature, it turns off the power and uh, you can 
set it so that it's got a temperature zone. And once it gets over that temperature, turn it off. And then once it gets below a certain temperature, it turns it back on. It's very similar to the thermostat inside of any kind of a device or even the thermostat in your house. Uh, the next style is what's called an immersion style. Uh, and this is a device that you uh, will put into uh, the water and you'll hang the edge of it on the uh, the lip of a pan or some other container that you're going to be cooking sous vide style in. The advantage of an immersion style is that it actually circulates the water so that you know that the entire area that uh, is that the cooking is taking place in has uniform water temperature. And this is particularly uh, useful when you're cooking in uh, larger vessels. Um, I've tried a, a couple different styles and uh, there are a number uh, of them out there that are in the $120 to $200 zone that are extremely good, uh, are very reliable, and some of them now actually uh, will connect via the Wi-Fi to your smartphone through the internet or at home so that you can program it and uh, use it to interact with your cooking process. I'm an old school guy. I like to just be able to set it and forget it. And so uh, those additional features aren't anything that appeal to me. But for somebody that likes the uh, additional stimulation of using their smartphone to control a device, uh, it is an option. And then the last style that we've got currently uh, in the market are the Savid dedicated device. These are also called water ovens. And uh, until recently, those uh, typically were in the four hundred plus dollar range uh, for one of those, and the, the disadvantage of those is that they're very they're fairly large and they're a one purpose. Uh appliance. They don't really do anything else for you. However, recently uh, I have noticed on uh, Amazon that there are some that are coming out now f- uh, in the sub $100 uh, price zone. And I haven't uh, felt comfortable yet uh, trying any of those out just because I'm very happy with the results that I'm getting with uh, either the temperature controller or the immersion uh, uh, style device that I've got right now. Anyway, I hope that helps some of your listeners. And if you've uh, got any questions, please feel free to follow up with me. Thanks. Okay, I have a couple things to say, but the first one has nothing to do with the content, really. Um, it has to do with my encouragement that some of you consider developing your own thing from a content production standpoint, whether it's by writing, whether it's by podcasts, whether it's by videos on YouTube. And I'll be straight up. There's not room for every single person that tries it to be successful in this world. Uh, you, you do have to be good at what you do. You have to be consistent in what you do. You have to be dedicated to what you do. And you have to be creative to keep coming up with new content so it doesn't grow stale. But it's doable. And if, I mean, I can't tell you how many people told me over eight years ago, there's no way you can do a podcast a day and make it sustainable and keep coming up with new things. And my response to that was, well, let's find out. And, and, and so I want, this is how I want to encourage you. I'm going to bet that Jeff's not a professional radio guy or podcaster that that's not his main line of work. I could be wrong, but I'm going to bet it's not. I'm going to bet that he didn't sit down with a script and go over it and edit it. He might have done an outline. He might have done it just off the cuff. But like I said, this could have been an expert counsel call. It's as good as anything that comes out of the expert counsel, you know, considering the subject and the, the, the response and the knowledge. Why? Because he knows his shit about this. Because he does it. And that's the key to content creation is... To know your subject matter because you have experience with it. Actual relevant experience. And that doesn't mean you have to be an expert before you start talking about it. You can give your experience of completely screwing it up. And people actually like that because they learn from you when you have the humility to be able to do it. But I just kind of wanted to point that out. Next up on sous vide, um, I uh, bought one of the immersion cookers. The one He mentioned that he had, I don't think he mentioned in the audio, but in his email to me, 
He mentioned that his friend that he works with has one called the Anova uh, sous vide cooker. And Anova is the one that the guy that started this whole thing rolling is using because I, I got an email from him. And that's the one that's like completely integrated with your phone. And you can put your food in the pot and you throw a bunch of ice in the water. And have your steak ready to go and sit in there, and it can sit in there until you know four o'clock in the afternoon. And when you're getting ready to come home from work, you can go and turn it on from your phone, and it'll come on and it'll run. I looked at that one. I liked that feature for you guys, not so much for me. I work from home. I don't know that I would use that that much. Um, and because of some of the things I've learned about sous vide since I started listening to all these people, I know that if I need to let it sit for like an extra hour, it's okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. So if I'm going to leave and come back and want it to be done, I'm going to be gone a little longer than the cook's going to take. I don't, don't care. I could just do that. So it didn't seem that valuable to me. And there was a significant number of low reviews, about 15% one- to two-star reviews, with failures out of the box or quick failures and some other things. The other one that the gentleman that, that likes that one said I should look at is, is made by Chef Steps, and it's called the Jewel. Jewel, J-O-U-L-E. I have a link to it in the notes with the sous vide cooking links from Jeff's call in today's show notes. All of the stuff is, is linked up there. And I chose that one because it does work with your smartphone over your Wi-Fi or your Bluetooth, but it doesn't work remotely, so you can't turn it on from work. But anywhere in your house you can. And I guess the downside is it doesn't have any controls on it. You have to use your smartphone. How well does it work? Don't know yet, but everybody that used it seemed pretty damn happy with it. No negative reviews on the thing at all, uh, except for one guy that was bitching about the box having a scratch in it or something. I just don't even listen to stupid shit like that. That's, that's the person that's getting the snowflake metal with the two crossed safety pins on it, if you've seen that meme. Um, I, I'm so distraught that my box was scratched. Just go freaking crawl in a hole, set off a hand grenade under your ass and die. And just bury yourself in advance so no one has to deal with your exploded corpse if you're that person. So the reason I chose this is that I watched a YouTube video where the guy set the two of them up and wanted to see if you're going to bring the water to 145 degrees, how long does it take for each one to get there? And, of course, once you get there, that's when your cooking actually begins from your time standpoint. And because the Jewel has a 1,200-watt heater versus a 900-watt heater, it did it um, 30 minutes faster. 30 minutes faster. Now, I get that I can turn it on and walk away from it and not worry about it, but if you know, I have some people come over and decide, hey, well, let's sous vide these steaks instead of doing them on the grill today, that extra half hour matters to getting things cooked, people fed, and go home, right? So I just decided from a speed standpoint, um, and it's also smaller, to do that. Now, here's something that I really just kind of came to in my head about sous vide cooking. Very minimal cleanup. You put the steak or whatever you're cooking in a bag, you cook it, you take it out, and you throw the bag away, and the pot you cooked it in is not dirty. It's clean water. It's clean hot water in there. You couldn't clean it with anything better. And the immersion cooker, if you're using the immersion method, is clean because it just sat in hot water. You rinse it off and put it away. So minimal cleanup. Now, what most people say to do is to sear your steak by getting, let's say, a skillet really hot, add some butter to it, and sear the outside of it. Sounds like a great idea. You might even season it with some salt and pepper and garlic or something like that first. Give it a crust. 
But what about this? If you get a little, like a little benzomatic torch, you know, like a, like a propane or, I'm sorry, butane torch, and sear it with a torch after you season it. Well, it can just sit on the plate. And there's literally your cleanup is your plate you ate off of and your fork and your knife. I think it's pretty cool. And what's starting to, to attract me to sous vide is not just the precision of cooking, but the concept of the ease. Because I always saw this as like a kind of artsy-fartsy pain in the ass, but it's actually dramatically simple. Now, I say all that with I have yet to take the plastic off the box and open it because we had a big Christmas party this week and we made like 400 million of Dorothy's meatballs. And uh, we still have a bunch left over, and I don't like to, you know, when I have leftover food in the fridge, it either gets refrozen if it's if it's doable, or we eat it before I make new stuff because I don't like food to go to waste. That is being not uh, not responsible in my view to have good food go to waste. So I will try it. I will definitely be cooking sous vide over the the break. Again, I'm going to be taking a break next week. I'll leave uh, this Friday. I'll have the Christmas special run. And I will be gone, and I won't be back till like it's the second of January. It's the the first workday after New Year's. Okay, I will return with a new survival podcast. I will be running rewinds during that week. A lot of you spoke up and said, "Yeah, we want that." Uh, a lot of you, I appreciate this too. You said like, um, like, yeah, you can do that, but if it's going to take away the time that you spent with your family, or whatever. No, I get up much earlier than Dorothy. Uh, I can every day, even instead of preloading them, I can get up every day and I can put up a rewind in fifteen to twenty minutes. I'll be done with that and out feeding the birds before she's up. And that doesn't mean she gets up really late or anything, lays around in bed or whatever, especially the day she has to go get her granddaughter. She's up pretty early. I just get up really early. Lately, I've been getting up around 6, um, probably because it gets dark so damn early and it just pisses me off. So I could get up at 6, uh, and after uh, using the facilities and having a glass of tea and doing a rewind episode and heading out to the ducks, it'll only be 6.30. So I, I, I don't mind doing that if you guys want to see it or hear it. And again, on the rewinds, if there's specific shows or topics you want, send me an email, TSPC Rewind in the subject line and tell me like a specific episode or just the topics you'd want to hear. I'm building a folder with this. So when I'm using rewind episodes, I can go there. I'm getting some great ideas going, gee, I forgot I did all that shit. So thank you for that. Next up, I have a question. This is from Michael and Michael says, Jack, you talking about the Ruger 77 357 piqued my interest. I have not a lot of guns, but quite a few. Uh, my go-to gun for deer hunting and other medium to large game has always been a 306 Springfield and a Remington 700. Beautiful dude. I mean, come on. That's, that's classic. I mean, that, that's anything in North America. You don't need anything else. No problem there. Okay. And he continues though, but I like novelty and I also hunt a lot of areas where I don't need the reach of the 306. And this sounds intriguing to me. I started looking into it, and I'm sure you know this, but Ruger also made, or does still make, I can't tell which yet, uh, a 7744, uh, uh, which is basically the same gun with 44 mag uh, cartridge in it instead of 357. This also got me thinking there's plenty of lever guns and single shot options, as you know, uh, for both of them. In fact, almost everything made in 357 Magnum as a carbine is also available in 44 Magnum. I was wondering if you could tell me what you would do if you were me and going your first step into this. One reason I'm asking this question is even though I just saw that you completely knocked the shit out of a deer with the 77357, I'm a little bit apprehensive about using it. 
And I think I might have more confidence with a 44 mag carbine. All in all, is the 44 mag just a little bit better than the 357? And are there any trade-offs when you go up versus down in this situation? Well, first of all, Michael, that is an outstanding question. I mean, that is just beautifully put. The only thing you really didn't tell me is, like, is deer your main thing? Are you also hunting hogs and stuff like that? But it really doesn't matter to the answer I'm going to give you. So when I read this, I immediately thought back to one of my favorite authors. And though I cannot remember which book it is, Peter Hathaway Capstick, who wrote books like Death in a Lonely Land, Death in a Long Grass, um, one of his books... Again, I can't remember the name, but I should, because it's the one I learned about Biltong, and I'm sure of that. It's really not about hunting in Africa, though there's some stuff in it there. It's really, Capstick wrote for Shooting Times and Guns and Ammo both as, as a contributing editor. And I think everything in this book is from Guns and Ammo. And this is like old school Guns and Ammo, like back when you read Guns and Ammo because there wasn't anything on the internet because there wasn't any real internet. Like when I was a kid, you learned about all this stuff through magazines. They were much more, I think, valuable to the shooting community than they, they are perceived to be today because there's so much info out there. And when I read this, it was an interesting thing because I thought, yeah, you're wrong. When I read the, the, the title of the article, and it was anything the 20-gauge can do, the 12-gauge can do better. And I'm a huge fan of the 20-gauge. Especially like your light framed either side by side or over and under doubles. And when you can take a pound off of what I'm carrying through a field all day long in the pursuit of something like pheasants or quail or something or grouse, um, that matters to me. I mean, I don't get a lot of like hunting like that down here in Texas, but when I was reading this, you know, I was living in Pennsylvania and you might walk 13 miles in a day to shoot two rough grouse if you're lucky and, and you don't miss. So, you know, taking a pound, pound and a half off a gun, I'm all for it. I mean, that, that thing gets heavy after a while up and down those hills and those granite boulders and stuff like that, or just climbing through the swamps after something like uh, woodcock. And if you don't know what a woodcock, you can look it up, but they're a little bit, little bit bigger in the breast than a dove, but the bird overall is smaller than a dove. They got a long beak and they, they call them timber doodles and you hunt them in like the swamplands and stuff. Usually we'd hunt them when we were also hunting ducks. And, uh, you know, you just think, How much killing does a woodcock need? How much killing does a dove need? How much ki qu killing does a freaking quail need? We're talking about a bird you can hold in your hand. You know? But when I read Capstick's article, the case he made from a ballistic standpoint, range, patterns, densities, flexibility, he was right. He conceded almost everything I just said in his article, which that's a great way to destroy somebody's argument. Everything you said is correct, but boom. And... When I think about it, I see this the same way. Anything that the 44, the 357 Magnum can do, the 44 can do better from a terminal ballistic standpoint. That's where all the advantage is. Um, both of them are lethal. Both of them need correct shot placement. Both of them have somewhat limited ranges. I would say about 125 yards. If I was going to shoot and I want to say I want to have my outside maximum range be 150 yards, The 44 mag with heavy slugs, from my experience in shooting both of these cartridges in a whole, huge variety of, of carbines, not just the latest one, the 44 mag would get the edge. I would call it iffy. And it ain't about, it ain't about impact. If you look at the ballistics, you're gonna hit with that 357 at, at, a, at 150 yards out of a rifle, like you're hitting about 40 to 50 yards out of a handgun. Because that's how much extra velocity that barrel gives you.
And anybody that says, well, the, 40, the 357 is not adequate on deer at 40 yards out of a revolver with a 6-inch barrel or a 4-inch barrel is, is just not worth listening to. There's too many damn dead deer from it to believe that. Now, shitty people that can't shoot well are using the wrong ammunition. I don't want to hear your sob stories. Don't do that. But when it comes down to it, the terminal performance, the impact, the lethality, everything about the 44 on the terminal end is better. But the 357 is enough. But if you have a confidence issue, like, this is the first time I'm doing this, I'm not worried about you getting in a deer blind or up in a tree stand or something like that and and and, and having the shot and then fubbing it because you're not confident or uh, just just not taking it because you're not confident. I'm not, I'm not worried about that if you're an experienced hunter at all. What I'm worried about is if you buy a .357, you'll love on it, you'll take it out, you'll shoot it, you'll think it's really great. And then the time will come to go out in the deer woods or the hog woods or whatever it is. And even though you know you're going to be hunting in dense cover, and even though you know 100-yard shot's about as long as you're going to get, and probably 40 to 50 is what you're going to get, you look at it, and you look at that 700 that never let you down, and you pick up the 3006 and say, well, maybe next time, buddy, to the, the new gun. So if that's going to happen, I'd say go with the 44. Where does the 357 excel? It is less expensive to shoot, and it is less expensive to reload for. And everything that you can do as far as you know, going down to like subsonics with, with heavy lead, you can do it with the 357. The 44 will do that better, though. A 300-grain hardcast lead coming at you at 800 feet per second is damn lethal, more so than going down to light 38 special loads that you can push maybe 180 hardcast leads out of. So... If you're going to go with the suppressed squib stuff, for, for st if you're going to actually shoot anything with it, other than just plinking cans or something, you know. The other thing is, I have found, in my experience, in downloading both, that 357 rifles tend to have a lot less enthusiasm for the accuracy of 38 specials than 44 mags have for 44 specials. And I'm not talking point of impact, I'm talking consistency and group size. The 44 seems to load down from an accuracy standpoint better. Even when we go to my super light 44 mag load that you can hear the hammer fall over the, the, the charge, out to about 30 yards, it's very accurate. And it's okay out to 50. And then it goes to crap. Well, it is a very low velocity round, okay, at that point. But I've seen just, you know, good hot 38 specials. You know, like a 38 Special Plus P, just not consistently group at even 50 yards out of a 357 mag rifle, let alone when you start loading down those heavy loads. So if you're going to play with the, the low end of things, I would also go with the 44. If you want something that gives you, like, a really cheap gun to shoot a lot, then the 357 is better. And even if you're a hand loader, because just go out and price the components. Just, I mean, the powder makes a difference, but what makes a bigger difference is look at the price of slugs. You know, the price of your bullets. So the 357 costs less. It's also kind of neat. And there's also a whole shitload of people out there going, it's not good enough. And then every time you kill a deer, you feel good about the fact that they're wrong. And I do mean that a little bit arrogantly. I mean, it's just, I'm so sick of hearing people talk about how, how something won't work. Well, there's all these people that did it. Well, I know a guy one time, and he crippled a deer with one. I know a guy that crippled a deer with a .338 Winchester Magnum. I 
crippled it here except I disabled it so it couldn't move with a 7mm Remington Magnum with a 165 grain bullet. Look at the ballistics table on that. That thing is phenomenal. Why? Because sometimes shit doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. I had this deer dead in the shoulder blades with, with a 7 mag. It should have blew right through both of them and took the front of the lungs out and dynamited that deer. The deer went down like it was dynamited, and, when I, and, and it started flailing its head around, and I didn't have a sidearm on me on that hunt. So I, I walked up and expected to die while I'm walking up to it. I get there, and it's flailing antlers around. I'm like, I'm not touching that, and I'm not trying to cut its throat with a knife or nothing. And I'm sitting here with this cannon. I had to shoot it a second time. And when we looked at what happened to it, the bullet hit the shoulder blade, turned 90 degrees up, blew the spine, just shattered the spine, uh, basically paralyzed the deer from the neck down, or like from the, like four shoulders down. It couldn't move, but it, w it would have never bled out. There was barely any blood that came from that wound, as crazy as it sounds. So just because something didn't work for somebody, you know, even if they're a good shot, doesn't so, hunting, you do everything you can to do it right, and sometimes things go wrong. The hunt I was just on, there's a young man. He, he, I, I know he's a decent shot. He took a shot at 100 yards, a 6.5 Grendel, I think, or something like that. Deer should be dead. Uh, lots of blood. Lots of blood at first. Less blood, less blood. Tracked that deer for almost a mile for him and it concluded this deer's not dead. Might die, but we're not recovering it. Does that mean that round's not sufficient for whitetail? So I think both of these are fine guns. But if you want confidence in your terminal ballistics, no one's going to tell you because it's preposterous to think that a slug about as big around as almost it's almost as big around as your thumb, right, is is not going to be sufficient for killing a whitetail. So go either way on your models. Uh, you said do you think Ruger either made or still makes the seven seven forty four? Gander Mountain has it on their website is available. I have seen all the 77357s in the retail outlets just vanish like a fart in the wind. I'm sure there's plenty of them out there. But I think Ruger's discontinuing the 7744 as well. Uh, there's no mention of it on their website, though they haven't announced it yet. So if I wanted one of these, I would get them now. I'm actually thinking I like the 357 so much. I'm thinking about buying the 44 too. Uh, I actually have a custom stock coming from Boyd's Gunstock that will be nestling my my 357, and I'm going to play around with some modifications to the triggers here and stuff like that, and I'll put that stuff on YouTube. But I hope that breaks it down for you. They're both great. The 44 is better from a power standpoint. The 357 is better from a cost standpoint, and and that's really the the short of it. Uh, next question I have is about the Electoral College, and not the stupidity. Do you think that the People pledged to vote for Trump are going to uh, to uh, to flip because the celebrity said to. Because if it if it said that, I I just wouldn't even answer it because I just think it's dumb. I I I think the, the arrogance and hypocrisy of, of celebrities that think because they say something stupid shit like I'm going to move to Spain or I'm going to move to France or I'm going to move to Canada if, if 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 you guys vote for 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 Trump it's just it's just hilarious. The, I mean, I don't care if you're a Meg, I don't care if you're Conway, Kanye, whatever the hell his name is, West, or, or Kim Kardashian, or like even a good actor, like let's say Tom Hanks or something like that. Like if you're gonna tell, if you think you saying you're gonna leave the country, um, is going to, uh, to, 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 to influence the way that I, if I voted, that I would vote, uh, all I can think is, you know, uh, Curly Bill from the movie Tombstone, well, bye, right? Well, bye, Felicia, 
right? Okay? So it, it amazes me. But this is a much more interesting question, I think. It says, one of the things you hear about since the election is the electoral college. It's undemocratic. It's outdated. It makes Californians vote worth less than an Idahoan. It was created to support slavery. I know that you're an anarchist and get tired of talking politics, but you've studied history and the founders. I thought it would be interesting to get your thoughts on the system. If you're going to run what we are, which is a democratically elected republic, the division of power is extremely important. And if your republic is supposed to have states that are seen as sovereign states within the republic, which is what our nation is supposed to be, the Electoral College makes perfect sense, and I'll explain why. Additionally, it makes sense that you actually have, for the, the bodies of government that have the most direct effect on your laws, those would be the bodies that create the law and the bodies that enforce the law. That they have each a different way in which you elect the people to them. And we used to have, we have three then, okay? We have the Senate, we have the House, And that's on our uh, legislative side. And on our executive side, we have the presidency. And the judicial, if it was unpoliticized, which it should be, should be pretty non-important. Now, I know it's very important. Uh, don't get mad. Don't yell at the, the speaker or whatever. I know that it is. But if we actually appointed justices who strictly interpreted the Constitution, it really wouldn't matter who you appointed. Because then they would do their job. Because these things are actually pretty easy to understand. So not electing judges, I, I kind of like that because it makes the judges independent from the will and the tyranny, therefore, of the majority. So what the founders did when they set this up is they said, well, this is what we'll do. We'll have the House. That's like the House of Commons in, 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 in England. And a lot of stuff was based on what was going on over there because that was what they knew. And that will be the body of government most beholden directly to the voter. So, And they'll stand elections every two years. This is going to be the place where the people can have their voice heard. So we're going to give them the most power from a negative standpoint. So they're not going to have the power to get anything done without the Senate's help. Because if it doesn't pass both, both bodies, then it doesn't ever get to the president. But we'll do something that makes the people have the ability not to make things happen, but to prevent shit from happening. If they'll be good guardians of this constitutional republic, and we'll give them. We will give the House the power of the purse. All bills regarding the spending of revenue are to originate in the House of Representatives. There's a lot of times now they take a bill, they put a different name on it, they toss it back over the fence, and the Senate really did it, but now if the House okays it, then it, it but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Every piece of legislation that involves spending money and every budget is supposed to come out of the House first. So they gave the House the power of the purse, which if you think about it, doesn't give them a lot of power to do things to people, but it sure as hell gives them the power to say, we're not going to do that. Or we're going to end this war. We think this war is a bad idea, so we're just not going to fund it anymore. Now, none of them have the balls to do that, but that's what they're supposed to do. So the most beholden to the people were given the power of the purse. The Senate was seen to be a much more conservative group. And senators were not voted for in popular elections. See? They had their own unique way that they were voted for. Each state was to be Republican in its form of government. 
So it was to act like a mini-republic within itself. So Idaho, Texas, Florida, do whatever you want, but you have to be a republican form of government because you're in a republic. Okay, boom. So they all come out their own ways. They all manage their own elections and things like that. But what they said is your legislature, which is directly elected by a popular vote, will appoint senators to the Senate. See, these guys are pretty freaking smart. Because what that did is it meant a state like Texas or Pennsylvania or Vermont or Massachusetts had a lot of power in who would go there to cooperate with the popularly elected House reps in the form of their senators. Senators would be appointed for six years. They, were, they would stand elections, but the election would be within the governing body of the state. This gave people a lot of indirect power. Because if you were really pissed off at who they sent there as your senator, well then it's much easier to flip an election at the state level. So if the legislature was afraid that those guys were going to lose their jobs, they'd turn around and recall their senators, replace them. And that gave the states the ability to, to have a voice. So we had the people directly with a voice, and then the representation of the people in the form of the state legislature with a strong voice on the two sides, and the direct representation having the power of the purse. And then they said, you know what? This whole thing, if we popularly elect the president, big states will get to trample on little states. That's what it was about then. That's what it's about now. But slavery, I don't care about what the issue was. The point was, big states, you can get two or three big states to vote for you in a landslide, and you can control the other ones. And this was one there was only, you know, 13 colonies that had just become states. Today we have 50. This is more, not less true now. So what they said is, well, each state will get a certain number of votes. Well, how would they do that? They would count slaves as three-fifths of a person, and that's... But that's not how they did it. That's, that's where the number eventually goes back to. But what they said was, well, here's what we'll do. Each state will get two votes for its senator and one vote for each of its congressmen. That's, that's where those numbers came from. I'm sorry, because it's, it's, they're all congressmen, right? It's, it's members of the House. So if a state had nine members of the House, they would get 11 votes in the Electoral College. And if the candidate that won that state would get those votes, or the state could decide how those votes were distributed. This gave the state, in conjunction with the people, voice at the executive level. Because there wasn't two presidents. Vice president never did diddly squat. Never really has, never really will. If they do so, they do so at the pleasure of the president. Okay? So... They're the president of the Senate. Yeah, and when there's a tied vote, then it matters, except, well, filibuster blah. Okay. Anyway, so since there wasn't, there wasn't this by, you know, it's like kind of a, a, a bifurcation of power like we have in the Senate and the House, then we had to create a bifurcation of power somewhere else. Because here's the truth about, but Hillary Clinton and popular vote. Sure, throw away California's votes and see what happens. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a moot point. You want a better picture of, of how this election went, go out and go on Google Images and search for an electoral map that breaks down blue and red by county. Not state, but county. When you look at it that, wow. Wow. And you realize, if we had a popular vote, 
those little spots of the Democrat vote would tell the rest of the country how to live, and they often do. They often do. But we set up a, our founders set up a system where candidates had to worry about how people in Iowa would vote, how people in Wyoming would vote, how people in Montana would vote. It actually mattered. It actually mattered that you had to serve all of the people. At least at some level, you had to speak to all of the people. And the, the concept that, well, if we went to a popular vote, things would be more democratic is accurate. It would be more democratic. Absolutely. But we're not a democracy. We're a democratically elected republic. Because, see, democracies are subject to the tyranny of the majority. If 51% of people want something in a democracy, you can get it done. If all it takes is 51%, then one party can end up with a, with a stranglehold on government. Well, that's what the Republicans have now. No, they don't have sufficient majority in the Senate to have a stranglehold on anything. You know, they're going to need, they're going to need the Olympia snows of, of the left to cross party lines, and it's going to be difficult to get that done. So, What do I think about the Electoral College? I think if you're going to run a republic in the form of a democracy, then it's probably the best system that I could come up with. I think there's some ways maybe to strengthen it. I think it gets, I think it gets manipulated at the state level through gerrymandering of the districts. But in the end, I think when you, when you look at a representation of the nation rather than just the total number of people, it's much more fair than a popular vote. And I think a lot of times, you know, all these people on the left, well, you know, we, they do it differently overseas. They do it differently here. They do it differently. Many of the countries that the socialists of the world look to and go, look, look, their prime minister is, is almost like d the Senate majority leader or the Speaker of the House or the two of them combined. And many of these socialist utopias, as far as the left's concerned, people don't even vote for the prime minister. They vote for their legislatures, and their legislatures elect their prime ministers. In some countries, a prime minister is part of basically a ruling executive committee and doesn't have complete power. And there might be some opposition represented there. So that this, I think if you ask the average dolt making this argument today, well, um, they have a vote, and the people vote like we should do with the public. No. The British Prime Minister is not directly elected. He's appointed by the Queen, yeah, the Queen, after the general election. And the leader of the party that secures the most seats in the House of Commons automatically becomes Prime Minister. So in that case, Paul Ryan would be our president. Paul Ryan is the House Majority Leader. The House of Commons is the equivalent uh, to the House of Representatives in the United States. So if you want to do what Britain does, fine, you get Paul Ryan. Ooh, you didn't see that coming, did you? Most of these people making this argument don't understand anything I said. They don't even know that, that the way our senators was elected was changed in 1913, and they don't understand how that was a bad thing for the voice of the nation. You keep hearing about the voice of the people. Well, the, the, the people make up the nation, and the nation is, is going to be as strong as the voice, so everybody feeling you have a voice. And if 51% of people get to decide everything and you're in the 49%, you have no voice. Our nation was designed, despite Thomas Jefferson's uh, 
calls at times for a nation to rise up in revolution once every once in a while, watering the, 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 the tree, watering the tree of liberty with the blood of patriots and tyrants, etc. Our nation was set up to avoid revolutions. Our nation was set up to avoid wars with itself. Our voice, our nation was set up to avoid coups. Our nation was set up to not be a banana republic. Our nation was set up so that if the will of the people really was, we don't want this anymore, it could happen, but at the same time, we could not have tyranny of the majority over the minority. The individual's rights were to be defended and protected. But slavery, I understand it wasn't perfect. I understand, and I wish we could go back and just yank that out like the cancer that it is. But the truth is, if you did, it would be damn near perfect. Women's suffrage. Okay, I'll give you that one too. I'll give you that one too. But, man, it's, it's, it's the best system of democracy that's actually ever existed. If the people were worthy of it. The biggest problem we have in our nation today is the people in this country that are getting shit, they're voting themselves money out of the republic's checkbook, are not worthy of the system that they're set to be guardians over. And I don't know that you could ever expect anything else to eventually occur, which is why I'm for a stateless society. Because as soon as you give anybody the, the ability to compel someone else to do something they don't want to do, or to tell them they can't do something, when neither of those actions was harming anyone, you've trampled liberty into shit. Let's take another one. Okay, this next one comes from Dylan. Dylan says, what does the, quote, gutting of Michigan public schools mean for the country as Betsy DeVos becomes Secretary of Education? What does this mean for the education paradigm? Details attached to an interesting article on the subject. It's an article from Vice. And I can't read it on the air because it's freaking, it's not an article. It's like a small book. It's long as shit, and it, 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 it turned my stomach reading it because it's just such a... A pile of crap. Vice must be a very, very left-leaning publication, I, I, I must imagine. Um, but the, the, there's this sob story in the whole thing about this mom, and she just found out her child will not be able to go to the same school she's going to go to. She'll have to go all the way to a school that's 1.2 miles away, or maybe even one that's 2.1 miles away, and they won't have a bus to take them there. And their school's being closed because there's less kids going to it, and they, they need $900,000 worth of repair to it, and the state doesn't have the budget for it. And this is all because of school choice. No, it's not. And, 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 and she remembers that she had stability in her educational program, and she was hoping that her daughter would have that too. Because she went to one elementary school, one middle school, and one high school. And they were all close to each other. And she grew up right in the neighborhood that she lives in now. And why can't my daughter have this? See, but here's her problem. She can't get her daughter to school 1.2 miles away without busing, which I'm not even sure why you wouldn't have busing at that distance. Maybe it's considered too close. I don't know. Because, dun, 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 she doesn't even have a car. So the, the educational system that she's pining for, I wish it was like when I was in school. What did it do for you? You don't even own a freaking car. And just reading it, getting the whole feel of it, I bet you she's living on government assistance. So this is what your educational system delivered to you. A life of mediocrity, living on welfare, 
where you're so poor you can't even afford a freaking jalopy car to get your kid 1.2 miles down the road to school. By the way, you can walk that far if you have to. And she doesn't have a car and the money to go all over Detroit looking for a charter school, which would be available to her if she could do it, but she can't afford to drive around or get around Detroit to find a better school for her child because of the educational system she wants to keep. School choice doesn't gut the system, but I wish it would. I wish it would gut it like a fish. Our system sucks. We have the worst educational system of any modern nation on the planet right now. While other nations are literally gutting theirs on purpose, we're gutting ours out of necessity. We have nations like Finland that are basically taking away all the subjects, letting kids study anything they want, and guiding them through so that they'll learn history and math and science through whatever subject they want to explore. And they're kicking us in the balls with results. And we want a sob story about a woman that can't drive anywhere because she doesn't have a car because they're changing the school system that produced her. I mean, the, the level of liberal hypocrisy there. You know what they're saying? It would be better if these places like this were maintained than if people were actually made uncomfortable and had to go out and do something better for themselves and their children. That's what they're saying. And this, I mean, I mean, Betty DeVos, she's being made into this evil bitch because she wants to expand all of these options for student choice and, and for homeschoolers and all. Good! And again, I want you to understand this. It is a dinosaur. The comet has already hit. The fireball's already raising into the atmosphere. And the only thing is the sun ain't been blocked out yet to kill all the dinosaurs. But it's, it, it, once, okay, once the comet hit, if that's what killed the dinosaurs, and I'm going to assume it did for the metaphor, in the Yucatan, there was nothing that was going to save the dinosaur in modern day China. He was just as dead. It just took a little bit longer. That's our modern education system. I don't give a damn if they shut down half the schools in America tomorrow. I would welcome it. And anybody that wouldn't is holding on to a failure. They are talking about, well, these other schools are very low-performing schools in Detroit. And the one they're closing, they want to keep open, was worse performing. They show these pictures of little kids sitting on their asses on the ground and a teacher pointing at the board. Oh, poor kids. The other school's just like that. They're closing it because it's failed. They're closing it because it sucks. And they're closing it because so many people are leaving Detroit they don't need as many schools. They're closing it because it's going to save Detroit just this year. Almost a million dollars of Detroit's going bankrupt. And there's two schools that are both less than two and a half miles away. And one's 1.2. And the justification for keeping it is a person out of the same system can't even afford a car as a grown adult. And doesn't give a shit enough about this horrible problem to do whatever it takes to get her daughter a better education. Because if it was me, if it was me, and I was really that stuck, I don't care who I had to call in favors with, I don't care what I had to do, I would find a way to get my child a better education. And if I wasn't capable of doing it, she may not be, of actually providing a better education then I would make sure I found someone that could. Because true education is a path to success. But all you're going to hear, and this is what you need to understand, it doesn't matter 
who Donald Trump appoints, the left is going to lose their shit over it. It doesn't matter what Donald Trump wants to do, the left's going to lose their shit over it. You know why? Because he's on the right side of the issue. And I don't mean the correct, I mean the right side of the issue. He's a Republican. Well, they're putting in people that are, you know, for, for, for cutting taxes. That's what Republicans say they want to do. Like, I, I, none of this shit's shocking. None of the, actually, it is shocking. It is surprising in a good way. I, I'm, I'm fighting the urge to actually get excited about this. Because I don't want to, I don't want to have my, my heart broke again in another situation. Like, I think we might be on the path to actually making some positive changes. I'm actually very impressed with a lot of people Donald Trump selected. Now we'll see where it goes from here. You know, I, I'm not on the Trump train for, for God's sakes, but man, when I, when I see people like, you know, General Mattis and, and the left loses their shit over that, I don't give a shit. Right? If we were worried about what you wanted, you would have won. But you didn't. You lost. You lost bad. For all the talk about the Electoral College, we just had a popular vote. You take away California, and you lost bad. They lost Wisconsin. They lost Michigan. They lost Pennsylvania. I mean, they lost states that they were sure they were going to. They almost lost Virginia. They, I mean, if, if you take the, 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 the D.C. Beltway, the, the piece of Virginia that ties to that, if you take just one county out, they would have lost Virginia. People are sick of it, and they want something different. Now we're going to see if difference better, or it's out of the frying pan and into the fryer. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. But as far as gutting the education system, good. But children will have to, what, find another way to learn? What, I mean... Are we really gotten to a point now where we're saying that traveling a mile is too much of a price to pay for an education? Because if we are, we deserve whatever the hell we get. We do. We're not worthy of the ideals that are the United States of America if we think traveling a mile or two is too high a price to pay for an education. You're not worthy of the education. But the children, yeah. And we need to be teaching the freaking children... That when you, when you, when you want something and someone's good enough to give you an opportunity for it, but you have to do something to take, take, you know, take a shot at that opportunity, that that's a freaking gift. That's a freaking gift. It's not an entitlement. It's a freaking gift. And either you think it's worth it and you go get it or you don't. And if you don't, you never deserved it in the first place. I don't care if you're a child. I don't care. If you can't be made to have enough desire to want to learn, you don't deserve other people paying for it. You don't. At some point, you'll want it. At some point, you'll take the path. And if we make the path too easy, people take it because there's nothing else to do. If you make the path just a tiny bit difficult, then people value the journey more and they'll get more out of it. And we as a society would do better as well. That's my thoughts on it. Gut it like a fish. Here's another, this is a good question, and, and, and when I answer it with kind of like the, the, the obvious thing that hits you in the face like a facepalm, don't think I'm picking on you there, Josh, in Missouri, because I'm not. But here it is. It says, Are there any negative consequences to using your vehicle's 12-volt power outlet on a near-daily basis? 
After listening to your interview with Jeff Yago, I picked up his book through the T-SPAS link. Thank you for that, Josh. Really, dude, please use T-SPAS. And enjoyed his perspective on buying products that use DC power. I picked up a DC charger for my DeWalt batteries, and I'm looking forward to charging them on the way to work. I have a 45-minute commute, so I'm not too concerned with wearing down my truck ba battery. But I'm curious if I were to use my vehicle's 12-volt power supply on a very consistent basis, would there be any potential problems? My understanding that is if your vehicle is running for a while, that your battery will recharge itself. There shouldn't be any problems. But what if somebody only drove their vehicle for 10 minutes or so while using a power outlet? What kind of strain would this put on a battery uh, for the vehicle in general? Thanks for all you do. All right, so you got to understand what your battery does. And let's just talk about using your, your – because your, the DC power outlet just means you're using DC electricity from your vehicle through that hole. But what do most people do? Not all people, but what do most people do whenever they drive? They listen to the radio. Maybe they listen to a podcast across the radio. It's doing the same thing. It's drawing voltage from the battery as it's being recharged by the alternator. And then, what does everybody do when they drive in the dark? Turn their lights on. It's also drawing power that's being generated by the alternator via the battery. And the alternator has more than enough output to do all that stuff every day and still recharge the battery. Because the battery, if we, for, 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 for the way to understand it is, if the alternator's working, you can disconnect the battery, and as long as the vehicle's running, it'll keep running, and it'll run the air conditioner, which uses electricity, all right? Not all electricity, some is mechanical, but it uses electricity. The lights, the horn, the radio. It'll all run just fine. And there's still more left over. And that leftover pops the battery up. So what does the battery actually do? It just provides enough power to turn the starter motor over and kick it on. So using your 12-volt outlet to charge a DeWalt drill or your cell phone or whatever it is, is no more strain on the system than using your radio every day. It's additional, but it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. The, the, the output of an alternator for a modern vehicle has so much more available that is necessary for the functions that it's performing. It really does. So don't hurt anything. Could it wear out the outlet? It could. I've seen it happen. They're not usually difficult to replace. Um, one, of the, one of the things, actually, though, that I've seen more than not is not any kind of mechanical or electrical failure, but a mechanical failure. The constant in and out and in and out. If you're using something, you're disconnecting. So what I think makes great sense anyway is to get yourself a little plug that has like two or three holes, and you, so you got one, one male to two females, so it's a splitter basically. And you put that in, and that way when you're pulling in and out, you're going in and out of that one, and if you cause damage to the retention springs or whatever, um, it's, it's that, and you can remove that and just replace it, and you'll have less failure. So I'll put a link to my favorite uh, DC power splitter for that application in the show notes today. And uh, otherwise, just don't worry about it. It's not enough to matter. Because you think about it this way. In the back of my truck are two GC2 golf cart batteries that, that pull extra power and charge those. And they run a 3,000-watt inverter. And that doesn't hurt my truck. Doesn't even make it breathe hard. So, yeah, don't worry about it. 
There's another interesting question. It says, hey, Jack, what, if any, advantage is there to leasing a car over purchasing for someone that tends to keep vehicles for as long as possible? The details. I've been driving the same truck for 15 years and have no plans to get rid of it. I'm considering getting a second vehicle for better mileage, passenger capacity, and in case the truck dies. I've heard ads for leasing vehicles for $69 and $99 a month with no da- with down payment and other fees. This seems good for what I'm looking for, but is there any advantage to a lease over purchasing the same model? Thank you, Mike. It depends. It depends. So you ca- you, you, your caveat was for a person that keeps a vehicle for as long as possible, and I already have a vehicle for 15 years that I don't plan on getting rid of. I want a second vehicle that won't get used as much because I'm going to be splitting the use between the two of them. You already lean toward purchasing maybe. Because things change, depends on the make, the model, of the vehicle. Let me first tell you, uh, you know, $69 a month at least is bullshit. $99 is probably bullshit. The best deal in my life I have ever seen on a lease, I negotiated for my son. He is driving a, a brand new Nissan Altima. It's not loaded, but it is nicely equipped. His down payment was $1,500. And his monthly payment is 129 bucks for three years on a 12,000 mile lease. And when his lease expires, he can either give him 500 bucks and walk away, or they'll, they'll waive it if he'll take another lease. Driving a new car for $130 a month, a brand new car, because in three years it's still brand new, is so stupid cheap that if that vehicle makes sense for you, then the lease might make sense for you. Okay. If you wanted something different that's going to cost more, who knows? It depends. Uh, in general, again, that is that is kind of bottom end, and that's because basically I helped him get it, and my credit is pristine. Uh, if he would have bought that car without me on the lease with him, he'd probably be paying $229, $230 on it. And my view was, I'll help him out with that. I'll help him build his credit with that. And if something goes wrong, it's 130 bucks. I can cover it. I'll take it out of his ass, even as a grown man, but I'll cover it. I'm, I'm not going to have my credit destroyed over it. I'm not co-signing on something that's a grand a month or something like that. So uh, I was willing to do that for him. I have right now in our possession the first vehicle we've ever leased in our lives. I've always been the kind of person that kept vehicles for a long time. Until I had the accident where we lost our Dodge truck, I had bought that vehicle in 2003, and I would have had it for another 10 years at least. Um, paid twenty seven grand for it, brand new. No way, at least would compete with that long term for a truck, a pickup truck. But when we went to get our Toyota 4Runner, which is what my wife decided she wanted, we go down there and I look at these vehicles, and with the same down payment, the lease, I think we're paying three sixteen. And this is like a forty thousand dollar 4Runner. We're paying three sixteen a month on, and there was trading in the Jetta on it. That was our down payment, and that car was worn the hell out. It really was. I have people from this audience. I'd like to buy it. If I like you, I don't want to sell it to you. Right? Um, it had been, it had been road hard and put up wet a lot. So, <laughs> it has been a lot of time doing 100 miles an hour, to be honest with you. Anyway, so we traded that in. We get this. And the only question is, do we buy it or do we lease it? So I think 316 is our lease payment. And I think it was 529 to buy it. But because it's a forerunner with high resale value, At three years, when we can, and we, we even bought a little extra mileage. We bought it up from 12 to 15,000 miles. All this stuff's important when you're doing a lease. We would have only been $800 ahead 
at 36 months by buying it. $800 a head. So what I'm saying is you do the math, and here's how that math works out. Okay, so our lease payment times 36 months gives me over three years. We're going to pay Toyota $11,300 and change. If we had done the buy during that same 36 months, we would have paid Toyota about $19,000 and change, $19,044. The difference between that is about $7,600, $7,668. I did the math uh, right here in the calculator before I start. So we're paying $7,668 less over three years by leasing instead of buying. And what do I mean by we would only be $800 ahead? The remaining payment on the loan, if we had bought it, okay, with a, with a pretty stupid low interest rate, would have been 800 less than if at 36 months we decide we want to keep it, we convert it to a buy, we'd only owe $800 more. We'd only owe $800 more. So you can figure that out pretty quick. That we're putting about $6,900 in our pocket by leasing, even if we eventually buy the vehicle. Well, you, 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 there's just no way to make a case for thinking of buy in that situation. Why? Because the Toyota 4Runner is one of the most high resale value vehicles out there. If we turn that vehicle in, they're gonna they're gonna clean it up, they're gonna spit shine it. It's gonna have less than 45,000 miles on it. They'll probably put a new set of tires on it. They'll go over it with a fine tooth comb. They'll sell it as a a, a pre owned vehicle with a warranty, and they'll put it on the lot for thirty one thousand dollars, and they'll get thirty. And they know that. And consequently, as long as we don't break anything, screw anything up, and do all the maintenance to it, when we take that one back in, this is where it gets even better. Because if I buy it, my solution at three years is, is to trade it in, maybe, and get what I can out of the trade-in. But getting rid of it is difficult. At three years with my lease, I can walk in there and I already have a contract. They'll cut me a check for 1430 bucks. Yep. They already said what they would pay for the vehicle. They already agreed to buy my end of the lease out instead of me paying a disposal fee for $1,430. So add that to the $6,900 we saved. Now, now it mathematically makes no sense at all. If we want another one, that $1,400 could become the down payment on our next vehicle and we can get another vehicle for lease. Or we can take $1,400 and go buy a vehicle or lease a vehicle somewhere else. So there was just no way that mathematically I could make that case. I'm not going to tell you that's always going to be ha happening and you should always lease your vehicles. I can tell you that the more and more people that I, I met in my life and spent time with that were affluent and wealthy, the more people I met that leased their vehicles. And wealthy people tend to be smart with money. They don't spend it just because they have it. They have it because they're smart with it. And they're smart about how they spend it. So in those two situations, I couldn't make a justification for a buy, either for my son or for me. In another situation, I might. If you really think you're going to drive a vehicle for 15 to 20 years, well, then buying can make more sense. But even if, see, even if that was the case with the forerunner, well, the smart thing for me to have done would have been to run the lease and in three years go to Toyota Financing and say, I want to convert this to a buy and made the higher payment for two years instead of making the higher payment for five. I mean, you have to be mathematically inept to do anything else than what I did in that deal. So this is what I'm going to say. You decide the vehicle that fits your needs best. You go in and you do the math behind it with multiple scenarios. I like the fact that if something had gone drastically wrong in our lives, if we could have just made the payment for three years, and making a smaller payment for three years would be easier than making a bigger payment for three years. By the way, 
Okay, so if we couldn't make the lease payment, we damn sure wouldn't have been able to make the buy payment. Then at that three-year point, if we're getting sweaty on something, we could say, "Give me my fourteen hundred bucks. I'm going to buy a jalopy. Here's your car." We had more options with it. You got to look at the totality. That's how I analyze everything we do economically, which is why we do well economically. This, the, the guy with the, with the shiny loafers that says, "Oh, for you, Mr. Spearco, you should lease." I'm listening. Explain to me why. I'm going to ask you some tough-ass questions that involve numbers and math and economics, and you better have a good answer. In the case of the Toyota guy, he was sweating by the time he was done, and he looked pretty relieved, and I said, yeah, we'll do that deal. Because he was like, this guy's a dick. I'm not a dick. I just look out for my money, because I don't expect you to do it when you're my salesman. I expect you to look out for your commission. I, I don't even hold it against you. I just know that's what you're going to do. So there you go. Next up, I have a video from a guy named Kevin Kelly, and this came to me from Josh, different Josh. And he says, hey, Jack, pretty interesting take on the AI second industrial revolution. Enjoy the holidays and the time off, Josh. So, Josh, um, I think this is an interesting thing to listen to. It's like 13 minutes long, though. So I'm going to pay, play basically the second half. It's like a six-minute cut. It's the, 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 the final part of it. It leaves out all his build-up to it. It's some pretty interesting points he brings up, but I think we're still not getting this whole thing about employment being displaced by technology, including AI and automation. Uh, so here you go. I'll play that audio for you. I'll come back and give you some thoughts on it. What we're doing is, is we're making alien intelligences. You might even think of this as sort of um, artificial aliens in some senses. And they're going to help us think different because thinking different is the engine of creation and wealth in the new, new economy. So the second aspect of this is, is that we are going to use AI to basically make a second industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution was based on the fact that we invented something I would call artificial power. So previous to that, during the agricultural revolution, everything that was made had to be made with human muscle or animal power. That was the only way to get anything done. And the great innovation during industrial revolution was we harnessed steam power, fossil fuels, to make this artificial power that we could use to do anything we wanted to do. So today, when you drive down the highway, you are, with the flick of the switch, commanding 250 horses, 250 horsepower, which we can use to build skyscrapers, to build cities, to build roads, to make factories that would churn out lines of chairs or, or refrigerators way beyond our own power. And that artificial power can also be distributed on uh, wires, on a grid, to every home, factory, farm, farmstead. And anybody could buy that artificial power just by plugging something in. And so this was a source of, of innovation as well, because a farmer could take a manual hand pump and then he could add this artificial power, this electricity, and he'd have an electric pump. And you multiply that by thousands or tens of thousands of times, and that formula was what brought us the Industrial Revolution. And all the things that we see, all this progress that we now enjoy, has come from the fact that we've done that. We're going to do the same thing now with AI. We're going to distribute that on a grid, and now you can take that electric pump, you can add some artificial intelligence, and now you have a smart pump. And that multiplied by a million times is going to be this second industrial revolution. So now the car that's going down the highway has 250 horsepower, but in addition has 250 minds. That's the auto-driven car. It's like a new commodity. It's a new utility. The AI is going to flow across the grid, the cloud, in the same way electricity did. So everything that we had electrified 
we're not going to cognify. And I would suggest then that the formula for the next 10,000 startups is very, very simple, which is to take X and add AI. That is the formula. That's what we're going to be doing. And that is the way in which we're going to make this second industrial revolution. And by the way, right now, this minute, you can log on to Google and you can purchase AI for six cents, 100 hits. That's available right now. So the third aspect of this is that when we take this AI and we embody it, we get robots. And robots are going to be bots, are going to be doing many of the tasks that we have already done. And a job is just a bunch of tasks. So they're going to redefine our jobs because they're going to do some of those tasks. But they're also going to create a whole new categories, a whole new slew of tasks that we didn't know we wanted to do before. So, so they're going to actually engender new kinds of jobs, new kinds of tasks that we wanted done, just as automation made up a whole bunch of new things that we didn't know we needed before. Now we can, can't live without them. And so they're going to produce even more jobs than they take away. But it's important that a lot of the tasks that, they're going, that we're going to give them are tasks that can be defined in terms of efficiency or productivity. If you can specify a task, either manual or, or conceptual, that, that it can be specified in terms of efficiency or productivity, that goes to the bots. So productivity is for robots. What we're really good at is basically wasting time. We're really good at things that are inefficient. Science is inherently inefficient. It runs on the fact that you have one failure after another. It runs on the fact that you make tests and experiments that don't work. Otherwise, you're not learning. It runs on the fact that there is not a lot of efficiency in it. Innovation, by definition, is inefficient because you make prototypes, because you try stuff that fails, that doesn't work. Exploration is inherently inefficiency. Art is not efficient. Human relationships are not efficient. These are all the kinds of things that we're going to gravitate to because they are not efficient. Efficiency is for robots. Okay? And we're also going to learn that we're going to work with these AIs because they think differently than us. So when Deep Blue beat the world's best chess champion, people thought it was the end of chess. But actually, it turns out that today, the best chess champion in the world is not an AI. And it's not a human. It's the team of a human and an AI. The best medical diagnostician is not a doctor. It's not an AI. It's the team. So we're going to be working with these AIs. And I think you'll be paid in the future by how well you work with these bots. Okay? So that's the third thing. Is that they're, they're different. They're utility. And that they are going to be something that we work with rather than against. We're working with these rather than against them. So... The future, where does that take us? I think that um, 25 years from now, they'll look back right now, and they'll look at our understanding of AI and say, you didn't have AI. In fact, you didn't even have the Internet yet, compared to what we're going to have in 25 years from now. And so um, there are no AI experts right now. There are a lot of money going to it. There's billions of dollars being spent on it. It's uh, a huge business. But there are no experts compared to what we'll know in 20 years from now. Okay? And so we are just at the beginning of the beginning. We're in the first hour of all this. We're in the first hour of the Internet. We're in the first hour of what's coming. And the most popular AI product in 20 years from now that everybody uses has not been invented yet. That means that you're not late.
Thank you. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. He's not wrong. I just don't know that the man sees the entirety of the scope of the issue. So the, the, what what the people are saying that are saying this is not going to be a bad thing in any way are, are trying to say is, well, yes, it's going to cost all of these jobs that nobody really wants to do anyway. And there'll be better jobs and more exciting jobs and opportunities and, and, and uh, tons of opportunities for entrepreneurship. And that's really the audience he's speaking to is entrepreneurship-minded people. you know, Because that's why he kind of sums up the end with, this is what I'm going to say that you should do in startups now. Take item X and add AI. Add artificial intelligence to a toaster, I guess, or you know, a microphone or whatever, or you know, anything out there that people use. Add add artificial intelligence to it and make it better, and that will create tons and tons of new products to sell. But those products are going to be built by automated systems that don't require people to build them. So you're looking at a hierarchy. You got to think about this and really understand it. Again, I've never made the contention that. Because of automation and artificial intelligence, no one will have anything to do for money. I've never said that. Not once. Go find it if you can prove me wrong. Never said no one will have a job. There won't be any employment. There will be no opportunity. No, no. That everything will just be like the Jetsons and you, there's no reason to go to Space Lease Rockets anymore. No, what I'm suggesting is if you look at the totality of what are people employed to do, and it seems like there's a million things people are employed to do, but, but that's not the case. People are either paid to make things, whether it's developing a service or developing a product or producing a product on an assembly line or, or something. They are in, at some level of we would call the manufacturing component of the, 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 of the production system. And that, I'm including a farmer in that. A farmer grows a turnip. They pr produce the, the item. Okay. Some people are paid to conceive of the item, to actually design the farm, or design the AI-enabled grill, or whatever. So we either design it, or we make it. Some people are paid to sell it, okay? Some people are paid to manage the whole thing, or be some level of management of people doing those things. And when I say sell it at this point, I mean like to market it, to, to develop a market for it. Some people are paid to move it, okay? And then some people are paid to do some part of the actual sales, whether it's professional sales or ringing the item up at a cash register. And if you, and that's about it. That's about it from a product standpoint. On a service side, you're, you're paid either to deliver the service, to develop the service, to execute the service, to charge for the service, or to market the service. That's it. And some people are paid to do a lot of those things because they're one-man shows. This show's a service. I produce it. I design it. I deliver it. Do it with all automation. To do a show like my show 30 years ago would have took a staff of 20 people. And there's people still doing it with a staff of 20 people. Because they don't, I've talked to people when I've, when I've done higher end interviews like the Glenn Beck show and all. I had a girl that was like the third person that vetted me that day to make sure they really wanted to have me on the show. Finally, when she was done and had, had made her call that it was going to be a thumbs up and a yes, she said, Can I ask you something totally unrelated to what we're going to talk about on the, on the air? I said, sure. She goes, How the hell do you do what you do? 
So part of the reason I gave you such a thorough vetting is I wasn't sure that you were legitimate. What the hell are you talking about? So how do you produce an hour and a half, two hours of content every day, five days a week by yourself at the quality that you put it out at? So, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. But second of all, all I need is a microphone and an editing software. Because you do your own editing, too. I'm like, of course I do. It takes five minutes a day. It takes five minutes a day to do my editing. You know, on a complex show, it takes 30. Could even understand it. But more, see, the, the new, see, this is the other thing. The newest entries into a market will always use the latest technology available. So the reason that you have podcasters coming out of radio doing podcasting and treating it like radio is they're doing what they know. That's what they're comfortable with. I have a sound guy. You know, I have a marketing guy that does my, my sales and marketing for my advertising. I have a person that vets my guests. I have, you know, this. And I got my wife who works four hours a week to do production side of, of things, which is booking guests and checking up on a few things here and there for me. And I could do that myself, but, you know, she was available, so it just makes sense. Somebody will come along and, and make what I'm doing look like I'm working too hard using newer technology, unless I keep up with the bell curve. And that's just the way it works. So what happens is all these new companies and all these, these new opportunities, all these new startups, when they come in, they're not going to have massive staffs. And their success is the demise of their competitors. And then when those people lose jobs, they're not going to go from Space Lease Brockets to Cogswell Cogs because Cogswell Cogs doesn't have anywhere near the number of employees and they got all they need. We're fresh out of jobs. Bye bye. And what I'm talking about is a situation where 10, 20, or 30% of our jobs over the next decade or two are eliminated and not replaced. Not 100. Not even 90. Do you understand what it means to this economy if 30% of the people that want, not just the people that already don't give a shit and aren't working on some form of the government tit, but 30% of people that want to work can't work. And another 20 to 30% can't get full-time employment because they're not needed that much. It's a massive disruption. And we're going to have to figure out what to do about it, and no one wants to admit it. And that doesn't mean there won't be all these new things, but this is another piece of this. There's a segment of our society that I've become more pessimistic about over the years. I know I'm going to sound like a dick here, but they're not capable of, of, of higher-end things. They're just not. See, I didn't used to believe that. I used to believe that anybody was. And through the years as I built companies, I would take people under my wing and mentor them. And think, this guy has the potential to come up and, and, and do really great things. And eventually you realize it's not that they're not trying, and it's not that you're not giving them the right information. They can't do it. They can't think this way. They're a person that needs a job where they punch a climb clock and they come in and they pack a box. You know? Or they answer a phone and they read a script and they answer questions. They tell somebody how to unplug and plug back in their router. We're, we're, I don't even know, you know, talk about put AI into technology. Would it be interesting if they just built routers that just rebooted themselves? When the router sensed it wasn't working, it just automatically rebooted itself. I bet that already exists. There's a tech support job. Gone. Because you don't need to tell somebody to unplug the router anymore. It'll do it for you. And if you do, now you call a thing and it says... Before we put you through to tech support, let's try rebooting your router. To reboot your router, you will need, you know, to take about five minutes. Do you have five minutes now? Press one for yes and two for no. Beep. Are you near your router? Press one for you. Beep. Can you see the lights on your router? Beep. 
So it's already almost there. And then a lot of those types of jobs, even though they're, they're not complicated, they do pay okay. They're already gone to India. I will help you reboot your router, right? Okay. That's racist. Shut up. It's not racist if it's true. You, know? <laughs> you just know you're not talking to Tom from Texas when they answer the phone. I'm sorry. You do. So, you know, that's a job that Tom from Texas used to have that he doesn't have anymore. But even, you know, Sanjay in India is going to lose his job because India is all about automation. And they got a billion people, not 300 million like we do. This thing is a shitstorm. And all this pie-in-the-sky stuff is right, but it's not addressing the problem. I want you to think about all the people in your life you know that are good, hard-working people, decent people, but they just don't have the skill to be a programmer, an automation engineer. They work on cars for a living. They load trucks for a living. They drive trucks for a living. They're good people. But that's what they can do. And frankly, that's the kind of work they want to do. They don't want to be in a fast-paced, high-energy environment. They want a simple thing. Look, I can drive a truck. Look, I can dig a hole. Look, I can run an excavator. There's a lot of people who do work like that. Trust me, they enjoy their jobs. A lot of them wish it paid better, but they, they like their work. I worked construction. A lot of the technical stuff I did was still construction. We did outside plant telecommunications construction. And, I mean, there were guys that... You know, when when we started going into directional boring, there were guys that didn't think were that swift. And, you know, we had tried to do other things with them, tried to teach them to audit a system so that they could just see who was stealing cable, right? Couldn't do it. Teach them how to design a plant, couldn't do it. I think, I don't know if this guy's going to be able to run this $150,000 machine we're leasing from Ditch Witch. And you put them on it, and in about an hour of training, they're like a master with it. They're good at it. That, that's going to be automated, That machine's going to run itself. They already have big ones that do. This is not going away. That doesn't mean to run for the hills, chicken little it, and you just say the sky's falling. But if you're not ready to figure out how to capitalize on it, you're going to be part of the 10, 20, 30 percent, 30 to 35 percent, I think, that are going to hit like a freight train with this. I really mean it. Let's take another one. Okay, next one's just a source of something you might want to check out. And this is, this is from Rory. Rory says, I have had NATO surplus cans for five years now. These look and feel just as good. I just got them and filled them up so far so good, and time will, time will be the test. Hold your breath. They're only $19 plus shipping, which isn't bad when ordering in quantity. <clears throat> Here's the link, and they're from a company called Ohio Prep Supply. Uh, and they are a NATO spec, at least that's what it says, Jerry Kim. Here's a link to the thread about them on AR-15. There were a couple of guys who claim uh, they already had these and left reviews, but these are new to the market, so I think they are mistaken. And there's a link to for AR-15 forum. They feel just as solid as my $50 NATO surplus can from Old Grouch. Hope it helps, Rory. So um, there are some reviews on AR-15 saying, hey, I bought one of these, and after a few years, it started to have liner flake off in it and come out in the fuel. And there's other guys saying, just pour it through a screen and quit whining like a little baby. But that kind of misses the point. However, these are new to the market, so I don't know that they're getting the same thing. Uh, and the story behind them, it, it, it seems to be that they are made in Poland, two NATO specs, and they are sold as a water can because they're not legal for fuel. 
Uh, you can figure out yourself and, you know, whether or not that really matters to you. Uh, but they are a 5.28-gallon NATO-spec jerry can. They're green. And there is an entire um, kind of, st like, you can see, like, how they're made, how they're fabricated, what they're done. And they are being sold um, to meet or exceed NATO military specifications. And it looks like it's legit. And apparently it's been well-received on AR-15 because, like, they blew this place up ordering these things. And there's, like, a delay right now. They ordered, like, a whole shipping container full of them. And so they have them now, but yet it's just taking them time to process orders. I'm probably going to pick up some and just give them the test. You know, that's all you can do is put fuel in them and see how they fare over time. Um, they look pretty damn good. My only issue personally <clears throat> is they're all green. They're all green, and I've standardized on at home red for gas, green for diesel. And I have enough diesel cans. Mm, you never have too much gasoline because it's a more universal fuel uh, in America anyway. Um, so I would have to probably mark mine in some way to make sure I don't accidentally use the wrong ones. But, you know, maybe just painting the little lines on them red or something like that would work. Because you're only supposed to put water in them anyway, right? Non-potable water, whatever. Anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes to both the AR-15 thread and the supplier. They are uh, $19 a piece. Uh, somebody bitched on AR-15 that when you ordered four of them, it was like almost 20 bucks of shipping or something like that, and that kills the deal. Um, that's like five bucks a piece. That's a pretty big, bulky item to ship. Um, I don't know what people, some I just don't know what people expect. Anyway, again, link in the show notes today. With a caveat that I'm saying it looks like a good story, it looks legitimate, but I have not used the product and I cannot officially endorse the product. I just make you aware of it. So this next one comes from Neil, and uh, Neil says, as you predicted years ago, what effect will universal health care, in your opinion, will be brought on the U.S.? And this is an article in New York Times, and the article says, GOP plans to replace health care law with universal access. Yes, you heard that right, universal access, universal health care. No, we're going to have universal access. And it's a long article, and you can read it if you want to, but the basic premise is this. The, the Republicans are now saying, yeah, we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, when we repeal it, it's not going to be like everybody that's on Obamacare is going to just fall off the end of a cliff in, in a couple seconds. Uh, there will be a transition period because we're real we're reasonable people. And when you keep talking about you know people losing their health care, well, we don't want that to happen, so we're going to have universal access. And so we're going to make sure that anybody that wants health care can get health care. We're also going to stop mandating people that buy, uh, mandating that people have to buy it. That's wrong. It's not right. And the other thing we're going to stop doing is we're going to stop having all this money come out of the federal government's pocket and going to the insurers in Obamacare. Do you know that billions and billions and billions, it's like a hundred and something billion dollars is being given to companies like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Aetna and, and what have you? So that they'll take these people in the pool for the price that the government says they have to charge. So, that, but that it's really kind of unconstitutional when you when you look at it. The the money hasn't been appropriated by Congress to do it. There sort of kind of is in the health care bill language, but not really. So the House says we're not going to do this. And, of course, they wrote this for the New York Times, of course. It says, like, oh, you better not do that because then only sick people will buy insurance. Have you ever heard such a stupid freaking statement in your life? 
Before Obamacare, what percentage of you had health insurance? I bet you the majority. And did you only have it because you were sick? How many healthy people willingly bought health insurance? Because you might get sick, you just don't know. Right? I had health insurance before Obamacare. By the way, it was better and it cost less. I'm just saying. I'm healthy. I didn't buy it because I was sick. I've seen what pre-existing existing exclusion conditions can do to people, though. It's it's a hard nut to crack if you're going to have this system. But I just want to remind you what I what I said, and I, I've said this so many times. So long term, most be like Jack. We know you said it. Well, not everybody does, right? Not everybody's been listening since the car days. In 2009, I said Obamacare will pass. You can call, you can scream, you can yell, you can bitch, you can piss, you can moan. It's going to pass. It's going to pass. It's going to pass. And once it passes, it's being passed for a specific purpose. It's being designed to fail. It's being designed to fail to make sure that eventually they can get what they really want, which is a government to take care of, take over insurance and health insurance altogether. Because there's trillions of dollars to be made there, and the government doesn't like to see other people get their money. They want it for themselves. Yeah. They don't care if it's profitable. They just want control of the money because the control of money in government is power. You get a trillion, you spend a trillion, you have nothing left at the end of the year except another budget of another trillion dollars, but you have a trillion dollars worth of power, and people in government and bureaucracy crave power over wealth. They end up getting wealthy because of the power as a byproduct. They don't have to worry about wealth. They want power. They want to dictate how other people live their lives. And if you take over healthcare, what is there left for them to take care of, take over? Think about how much control. They control the drug industry. They control the food industry. They control everything. Health is a logical next step. So it sounds good. Like the, the Trump plan and the Ryan plan are a little different, but they both come down to this. We want to, first of all, let people deduct their health insurance. You know, far, far, make it far easier for people to deduct their health insurance expenses uh, from their income tax. Well, sounds good. We want to let uh, the insurance companies compete across state lines. You should be able to buy the same insurance uh, that you could buy in Florida if you're in Ohio. Well, maybe there's less to that than you would think, other than some state mandates. Like, beyond Obamacare mandates, like California says health insurance companies have to do certain things with state-level legislation. right? So, yes, a California could buy a Florida insurance policy. That might save them some money. But the company that's operating in Florida, not California, might be doing it for other reasons, like how big they want to be. And most of these companies are in all 50 states. They just have different products in the different states to deal with certain things. So I don't know that, but it's not a, I'm not opposed to it to say people, you know, insurance companies can compete anywhere. Yeah, that's, that's good old Mark. They give you all of this, but they say, but, but you know, there is all these 40 million people that didn't have insurance. It was a lie, by the way. 40 million didn't have insurance and now do. It's a lie. It's not because of Obamacare. Some of those 40 million people don't want insurance, but they're buying it because they were mandated by law to buy it. The concept that 40 million people who couldn't get something now have it is a lie. But they're going to tell you, even the Republicans will say, well, you know, we don't like the way it was done, but it, it, it did address this problem. We have to address it. So we need universal access. We need to make sure that everybody that wants insurance can get it at, at some sort of an affordable price, which is not what's happening right now. They're telling the truth to sell a lie. So we'll have universal access. Well, how are you going to have universal access? How might that happen? What are you going to do? Tell Aetna you will take anybody that applies and you won't charge more than X for it? 
That's not much different than what we got. And we'll give you some money to help you do it. That's exactly what we have. But we're not going to mandate that people have to buy it. Okay. See, it doesn't work. And, and you got to understand that Donald Trump has always been okay with single-payer health care. I, I know I said some nice things about some of his decisions, but, I mean, you're not going to change that fact. That's an absolute fact that Donald Trump has been okay with universal health care as an idea. He's certainly been okay with single-payer, and it's probably more palatable to him if it's only an option. What they're going to do in all this, the grand compromise, and they're laying the grand, they know they're going to do it. They're going to act like, well, we had it. They absolutely know what they're going to do. They're going to create basically medic, a voluntary Medicaid for anybody that wants it. And it may start out people that make under $50,000 a year for a family or something like that. You can buy, basically buy into Medicaid, like a private insurance, but you're buying it from the government. And they'll keep expanding it as it becomes more and more evident that, you know, the family making $100,000 in the current system can't afford insurance either. And all of the, the, the things to stimulate it. And these people will start saying, hey, we want that insurance. Because now it's not a government benefit. Now it's a government product. It's a voluntary government service. Until all but one or two boutique high-end insurance companies that sell to the super wealthy are put out of business. Because when the government competes with private industry, government doesn't have to make a profit. Government can lose money. They just get more tax money. If they don't have enough tax money, the Federal Reserve just does some quantitative easing and prints some things up. Goldman Sachs does a little bond rearrangement, and they get more money. They don't have to make a profit. And if they don't do that, we just add it to the deficit. That's no big deal. We're, what? What's our, what's our national debt as of today? Let me go to debt clock to, to give you an accurate number. You know, this is actually pretty ironic. Uh, I was going to say $20 trillion, um, and I wrote an article during the midterm election season in 2014 called Why I Won't Be Voting This Year. And I gave a lot of reasons. And one of them was, I don't care who becomes president in the next election, they'll be looking at a $20 trillion national debt. I'll link to that article today. I got a lot of hate mail over that article. I was called all kinds of things, surrender monkey, whatever the hell that is, and all kinds of shit, because I decided that, that no one was worthy of my vote during the midterm elections. And that if you read the article, you'll see that my vote doesn't matter. But you'll see the number $20 trillion dollars in that article from over two years ago. U.S. national federal debt right now today, $19,942,000,000,000 and change. I'm going to guess that that number will be $20 trillion and some change the day Donald Trump is sworn as our next president of the United States. It'll say $20 trillion. And the reason I'm saying that's important is because that tells you right now that if the government wants to run a $2 trillion deficit for the next 10 years, they can. No, Jack, can you read Patriots are coming collapse? The dollar will melt down. And that's what everybody's been saying. You, this is what you don't get. This system's designed to work this way. This, this system is designed to work on debt. In our economic global paradigm, unless the whole global paradigm shifts, the nation that owes the most money has the most wealth. I know it doesn't make any sense. 
I'm not saying it's infinitely sustainable, but is it sustainable long enough for the government to take over health care and put all of the other uh, private insurers out of business because they can have a product that loses a trillion dollars a year and just throw it on the downside of the balance sheet and not give a shit? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that's the only way you're going to get universal access. Because what other mechanism, by what other means... Would you get universal access to healthcare? Who's going to provide it if the government doesn't do it? They're going to provide a government option to buy into Medicaid, or they may create a new thing that's like Medicaid but not Medicaid, because there's so many doctors that won't take Medicaid. And what they'll tell doctors is, this will be brilliant. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but this will be brilliant from their stance. You can't decline it. Unless your patient load is full and you simply can't serve more patients. If you're taking new patients, you will take this insurance and they won't mandate that the doctor take Aetna or Blue Cross or something like that. Because that's what's happening right now. My wife's losing another great doctor because they don't want to take her insurance anymore. Which has gone up and up and up and up and up and up. But they don't want to take it because even though it costs her more, they're paying the doctor less. They'll tell doctors... By law, you cannot discriminate against a patient taking this government alternative because we have to provide what? Universal access health care. And once that product becomes available, do you know what? I hate them. I think it's a terrible idea. But if I can buy it and put $150 a month back into my pocket, I'll buy that. Because I'm the healthy guy that doesn't use it in the first place. And that's what you don't understand. That's the brilliance here. That's something nobody's saying but Jack Spirico right now. The people that will gravitate to this type of health insurance will be not just the sick and the infirm that can't find insurance elsewhere, but people like me, who even if they don't like the idea of it, they like the idea of spending more to get less, even more. If this fulfills my obligation to buy health care, if this provides basic catastrophic insurance, if something goes wrong in my life, and if it costs me less money, since I don't spend a lot of time at the doctor's office anyway, since I don't have a lot of bills anyway, and if you were 21 or 22, if you're a millennial, think about it. Think about it. Think of how many people, you can stay on your parents' insurance until you're 26, but their parents are paying a lot of money for it, and they know their kid can get the insurance for less if they go on this program. You're going there. You're going there, son. You don't need to be on my insurance no more. Hell, I'm going there, too. Yeah. Yeah. It will become the most popular health insurance product ever released, even from people that don't like the idea of it, because it will cost less and do the same, and you'll stop being turned down because they'll make it illegal for your doctor to turn you down. You don't believe me? Just watch. I have a pretty good track record of calling it accurately, and this is how you get it sold. You say, we're going to give you all this other shit, you can have all the private insurance you want, and we're going to stop telling private insurance companies what to do, we're going to put this product out for people that can't get anywhere else, we're going to call it the uh, Universal Access Healthcare Act of 2018, it'll probably take two years to get it done, and it'll be coming right up to the midterm elections, and they'll scare the shit out of the renegades in the Republican Party that see it, they'll win over Democrats, they'll get it done, it'll be a great victory for Donald Trump. And people will be pissed at him, but he can afford for them to be pissed at him because he's got two more years before he stands re-election. Wish I had better news, but that's what's going to happen. Anyway, 
With that, if you like the show and the work that I do, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. There you can sign up. You can pay by PayPal. You can pay by cash, check, or money order through the mail-in form. Or you can pay with Bitcoin. That's right. You can pay with Bitcoin. Happy to let you do that. Any of those ways work. If you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or a first responder like EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do qualify for a discount. Just go, again, to the same place. And when you're, when you're filling out your form or you're signing up online, uh, before you do that, email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. So before, not after you join, email me. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll send you the discount code, and you can get that great discount. It is a very good discount to thank you for your service by the way next up the other way to support us in really a simple way is just go to tspaz.com whenever you go to amazon go to tspaz first tspaz.com enter and then there's a link it says go here to click here to go to amazon click that link do your shopping you just supported us while you're there you'll see a link to see the items of the day that i do a review of every day i got a cool one for you and it's going to roll really nicely into 2017 i get a lot of questions from new gun owners a lot of questions Um, a lot around maintenance and stuff like that, and I should do a show on basic maintenance of, of firearms and all. I just feel like there's so much information out there about that. But a lot of times the questions are like, well, what, what gun oil do you use and why? You know, what, what cleaning kit do you use and why? And, and basically I assemble stuff myself uh, using the products that I am comfortable with, I've been using for years. There's actually a lot of newer product out there that, that people use for lubrication and stuff like that. I use old school stuff because I've been using it since I was a kid and all my guns are still in great shape. And what I thought I would do is I would put together basically a gun maintenance kit, basic hand tools for working, cleaning tools, uh, the products I use as far as, like I mentioned in this article, Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber. It's one of the best cleaners out there. Uh, really, really wonderful stuff. Uh, it was kind of a go-to secret when I was in the Army. You got a hold of that stuff, and you could get that gun cleaned where that sergeant major's finger couldn't get in there and find that little bit of dirt after the action had been worked a couple times. Um And so what I would start out with, though, is my toolbox. I use a wooden toolbox that's made by a company called Gunmaster. It's a wood toolbox. It's got a drawer in the bottom, a big, deep bin, a top tray, and this is the best part. It's got two um, velvet-coated or felt-coated, I guess whatever you'd call them, um, gun, uh, basically, holders, like uh, little things. They stick in the box, and you can set your rifle in there, And you can run your patch through if you're doing a bore cleaning, or you can mount a scope. And it's so much more convenient than trying to do it, you know, on a tabletop or a, a gun mat or something like that to have something that actually holds the gun vertical. Because guns lay on their side really good. They don't they don't stand up really well. I guess maybe if you have a bipod on them. But this is great because you have it up on both ends. You can flip it over if you're doing something like may, maybe mounting your own sling studs if the stock didn't come with it. Just a really great box, and it's got a lot of space. It's not a perfect box. It's not high-finished Italian furniture or something like that. Uh, in fact, there's some negative reviews on it, and they bitch about maybe the fit and finish. And, I mean, this is a $35 toolbox. I, I don't know what people expect. It's not a fine work of art. It's a utilitarian tool. I also noticed one guy was bitching because the tray was not as pictured. He expected a tray with dividers and such. That's not what I saw in the picture. I don't know if maybe they had a bad picture they fixed or something like that. All I can say is I've had mine since before TSP started. It still works the way it did when I bought it. Um, the one thing I don't like it, the little slide-out bottom drawer where the, the cleaning kit, it comes with the 17-piece universal cleaning. It's got a rod and some brushes and some patches and stuff like that. And, you know, 
honestly, there's more stuff that I have for cleaning, and it's kind of a low-end cleaning kit. I'm okay with that because I think the box is worth the $35. Bucks. But that drawer holds it, and that drawer doesn't have a latch or a lock. So if like you tilt it, the drawer can open. I don't really like walk around with a lot or anything like that. If I'm going to throw it in my vehicle and take it to the range, I throw a piece of tape on the corner, you know, and, and then just take it off when I get home. But I'll come up with a little hack for that. But what I'm going to do with this is I put this one out today, and what I'm going to do from now on is as we go into 2017, each week I'll review an item or two that goes in the kit, you know, my punch kit and, and stuff like that. And I've already reviewed the uh, Winchester 51-piece driver kit, so that's in there. And basically what we can do over the first couple, three months of 2017 for you guys that don't really have your stuff squared away from a gun maintenance and gunsmithing thing is I'll do little videos too about how to use this stuff. And basically it'll give you kind of a soft entry into maintaining and doing some of your own work on your guns, like replacing a trigger sear to make it a lighter trigger or swapping a stock out or mounting a scope. And I know for a lot of you guys, you know more about that than me. There's some of you guys, you guys build custom ARs from the ground up and all, and I like my ARs, but the truth is, I like my bolt guns. I like my lever action guns. I like my old military guns. I'm a marksman. That's what I like to shoot. Um, I, I have the tactical stuff in case, God forbid, I ever need it, but I'm more concerned with putting a deer in the freezer or a pig in the freezer or, or ringing a gong at 500 yards to see if I can do it. And uh, I'll kind of you know, give some guidance there to people that are kind of soft entry. So people that have like their own product they like, or they have their own setup, maybe this won't be as good for, but I think one of the things I'm really proud about with TSP is despite of the fact we have a huge contingent of, of like hardcore gun people, which you would expect. We have a, I, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten over the years. I'm a first time gun owner because of you, or I had a couple guns and I never really shot them much. And I started shooting them and now I bought another gun. And those are usually the ones like, I'm not really sure how to maintain it, how to clean it, whatever. And a lot of times I'll, you know, I'll say I have a 1911 because you, you talked about them and I shot them. And I liked it. So I got one. I don't know how to take it down or whatever. And I, I don't usually do this on the air because how do you explain how to take down a 1911 in audio? So I'll find a decent YouTube video and say, here, take a look. This guy knows how to do it. Uh, but we'll kind of we'll kind of go through the basic maintenance of all firearms and build up this kit together. I think it'll be fun, and I'll just use the items right out of my kit. But this is the box. Again, it's called the Gunmaster Wood Toolbox. Shipping on it's like ten bucks, guys. That's the that's the negative. It's not on Prime. It's kind of a big bulky item. It's not huge, but it's when you take a look at it, you'll see what I mean. But um, really, I think what what did it for me when I first saw it are the gun cradles. Uh, they, they, they put away inside the box. You just put them in there. And when you want to work on your, your gun, you pull out your materials, you pull those out, you stick them in there and your gun cradles just beautifully. So it's a great box for 35 bucks. If I paid a hundred bucks for it, I'd be pissed, but that's, that's not what it costs. Uh, remember you can find all this great stuff at tspass.com as you support our show. And, uh, so that brings us to our song of the day. Yes, our song of the day. Our song of the day today, I try to, I want to do something fun. I wanted to do something kind of fun. So I was just looking through different Christmas songs because, guys, now what are we? We're uh, seven days, six, six days from Christmas, right? And uh, I was looking at different Christmas songs on uh, YouTube, and I found an edition of Blue Christmas by Elvis Presley, which you'll hear kind of this is cut into a live performance. It was Elvis Presley's favorite Christmas song to sing was Blue Christmas. But this one is a remix And they, it's, it's, it's like a duet with Elvis Presley singing with Martina McBride. Now, of course, um, 
Elvis passed away many years ago, and Martina McBride was no one at that point, so they never sung together. I think they would have done well, and when you hear this, you might agree. Um, but they, they, it's kind of like they did a few years ago, well, not a few years ago, like 10 years ago or more, they did a thing where Hank Williams Jr. sung with his father, and they just blended it together. Well, in this, they have an actual video you can watch, and it's like Martina sitting, like Elvis has his band sitting around, and they're just kind of jamming and singing the song like in a circle. They just fit her right in there. And the only thing is an audio geek, you might notice that the microphone she has isn't right for the time. Otherwise, it almost looks authentic. And it sounds really cool, and it's kind of fun. And Christmas is about having some fun. We talk about a lot of really you know, deep subjects here, and some things aren't so fun. Every year, there's a time to wind down. And as we head toward Christmas, I'm in my wind down. I'm trying to wind you guys down with me. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Summer blue, just thinking of you.